Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. This month on Flatbush in Maine, in honor of Pride, Zahir and I are diving into the meaning and history of queer spaces and experiences in Brooklyn. Of course, this episode now takes on new and heartbreaking meaning with the mass shooting at one vibrant queer institution in Orlando. We want to dedicate this episode to the victims and the families of those who were lost. Pulse Nightclub was a queer space, showing us the potential for community, identity, and expression, but also the precariousness of these spaces. So we're going to do what we do every episode. We're going to explore the deep and layered history of the time in which we live now. And we're going to do that on the ground here in Brooklyn. I want to make clear that in talking about these spaces, while they offer possibility, they also offer a lot of danger. I mean, they kind of created these utopian niche communities within the doors of their own house. But outside of it, it was still pretty dangerous areas. And let's create a space where lesbians will feel comfortable coming to find their own history. I don't hide, you know, anything. I'm the same person I was 10 years ago in terms of how I express myself, how I walk the street, how I do everything. I'm, I'm still the same person. Joining us is Hugh Ryan, writer and curator, who is working on an exhibit that Brooklyn Historical Society will have in 2017 called On the Queer Waterfront. Hugh, welcome to Flatbush in Maine. Thank you, Zahir. Let's start with the basics. Why queer spaces? I think we need to start by talking about the word queer itself. We chose that word after thinking a lot about the possibilities because a lot of people have objections to pretty much every word that you can use to describe sexuality, and we knew that going into this. We thought that queer, by not defining a specific sexual practice or type of person, kind of drew the broadest frame for our analysis so we could look at all different kinds of sexuality. And also, from a historical perspective, it didn't attribute an identity to people that may not have existed in that day. Things like transgender and even homosexual didn't necessarily always exist in certain places, although same-sex behavior and gender non-conforming behaviors were present throughout time. When you take that frame and apply it to space, you can actually start to look at broadly places where those kinds of people gathered, as opposed to trying to find a gay bookstore in the 1920s, say, or a lesbian bar. Instead, you could look at where these same-sex practices were most common in the city, what beaches on the factory floors, in what bars you would find them. With this more inclusive category, what are some of the spaces in Brooklyn that we can describe as queer? Where should we be looking? Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) A little more particularly, though, what we found was that the waterfront had 
a great density of queer life historically and today for a lot of different reasons, um, primarily revolving around economics, that being queer often, if you were visibly or self-identified as queer, meant that you couldn't find a job in a lot of places, meant that more desirable areas of the city were maybe closed off to you, meant that you wanted to avoid places that were heavily surveilled by the police, quite likely, meant that you were willing to take jobs that maybe a traditional woman wouldn't, jobs on a factory floor in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, perhaps, or if you were a woman with a beard or a transgender person who presented as visibly gender nonconforming, the freak show at Coney Island might have been the only place you could get a job. And Brooklyn's waterfront seems to become home to some of New York City's most vital queer spaces. Tell us about some of them. There are a couple in particular that I think might be interesting. I want to start by talking about a place called Seven Mid-Off Street, which was a communal house that was formed in the fall of 1940 by Harper Bazaar editor George Davis. George Davis was one of those guys who kind of knew everyone at the time. He was very out about his own sexuality. He had edited everyone from W.H. Auden to Gypsy Rose Lee. He was connected to pretty much the entire world, but... By 1940, he'd really tired of his job. He was fired from Harper's Bazaar. He needed money, and he had a dream one night. He had a dream of a house from which he could see Manhattan's skyline, and he knew it had to be in Brooklyn Heights. And he thought, I'm going to find that house, and I'm going to fill it with people that I know and love and create this artistic, nurturing community that he couldn't find elsewhere in the city, one, because he really couldn't afford it, honestly. None of the artists that he was living with made very much money during their lives, and what money they did make disappeared pretty quickly. And two, because he knew that the Brooklyn Navy Yard was a kind of less surveilled space. It was less watched. He knew that Brooklyn Heights was a little bit safer. And in particular, the area all along Sand Street, which was full of bars for sailors and um, seamen and people who worked at the Navy Yards, really held an attraction to him. One, they were very diverse. A lot of people coming in from all around the world would go through Brooklyn's port. But two, they were also open to displays of same-sex sexuality in ways that other places weren't. If you read Gay New York by George Chauncey, he talks a lot about how working-class sex sexuality at the turn of the century was a little bit more open to same-sex interactions than was, say, proper middle-class society, which is where George Davis was coming from. What took place at 7 Mid-Ock Street? Why is it so significant to Brooklyn's and, and really New York City's cultural history? It's a roster of some of the most interesting and incredible artists of the time. Carson McCullers is there, and she, in fact, writes the Ballad of Sad Cafe while she's living there and bases a number of the characters on people she met in gay bars on Sand Street. Paul and Jane Bowles move there while Jane writes her first novel. Gypsy Rose Lee writes The G-String Murders, or starts it at least, while she's living there. W.H. Auden meets Chester Coleman and falls in love there. Uh, it's really this incredible cast of characters. Towards the end of the time of Seven Middle Street, Richard Wright and his wife move in because they too felt like it was a place where, as an interracial couple, they were safer in the city than living anywhere else. And they get this like, incredible density of artists and musicians. Oliver Smith moves in towards the end of the time there, about 1942. And although at the time he's not really well known, they know him as Paul Bowles' cousin. He goes on to become one of the most famous stage designers in the city. And in fact, when he designed West Side Story, he said that he based the set on Sand Street and that it was more Brooklyn than Manhattan. How is it that people identified what was a safe space, where they could go, where they could gather, where they could live? Uh, what kinds of things were they looking for in moving to these communities? I think the truth is often 
they may not have been necessarily looking for the things they found, but in other neighborhoods, they found a lot of things they weren't looking for. W.H. Auden wrote in his letters before he moved into 7 Middaw Street that his landlady was watching him all the time, that she had started to suspect his sexuality. And then the more upper class area of Brooklyn Heights where he had lived, that was something that people took note of. And so she would sit in his in her car outside the house at night to watch people going in and out. And so he experienced that there. But didn't experience it in Brooklyn, in the part of Brooklyn Heights where Seven Middle Street was, the much closer to the waterfront, less nice neighborhood, honestly, because people were less concerned. It was also a higher crime area. It had fewer cops. It had fewer lights. It had fewer public promenades. You know, these weren't things they were looking for. No one wants a place with fewer amenities. But the truth is that what comes along with that is often a kind of paradoxical safety, right? When the cops are dangerous, not having cops creates a kind of safety, even though it then also opens you up to all other kinds of violence. And that I want to make clear that in talking about these spaces, while they offer possibility, they also offer a lot of danger. I mean, they kind of created these utopian niche communities within the doors of their own house, but outside of it, it was still pretty dangerous areas. What happened to 7 Mid-Ox Street? The whole area gets gentrified because it's a, you know, a poor neighborhood, and they use um, the BQE Robert Moses pushes it straight through 7 Middle Street. They knock the house down. The whole thing gets destroyed to make way for modernity. Did the decline of 7 Middog mark the end of queer spaces on the waterfront? You fast forward 50 years and you get Dumba, which is a collective house in Dumbo, (laughs) which is the neighborhood underneath the Manhattan Bridge right along the waterfront. And it's a group of people who similarly move there because they can't afford to live elsewhere in the city. This space hosted people like Rashad Newsom, who lived there for a number of years, who currently has a show up, a solo show, at the Studio Museum in Harlem. It was home to early shows by cabaret duo Kiki and Herb. Uh, Short Bus, the movie by John Cameron Mitchell, is actually based on some of the parties that were held there and filmed actually in the space before they closed. So do the establishment of queer spaces portend the coming of gentrification to a neighborhood? What's the relationship? All of these artists are living there, and they're all moving there because nobody wants to be in Dumbo at that point, right? Light manufacturing has moved out. The neighborhood isn't particularly safe. It's hard to get to. And for all these reasons, it's actually in some ways safer for queer people and definitely more affordable. And so they're able to live there and be themselves there. But yet again, in just a few years, in the mid-2000s, Dumbo starts to become a hot neighborhood. Rents start to go up. They start to get more policed. Their landlord starts paying attention as he starts getting complaints from other new gentrifying neighbors, and they force them out. And it's really unfortunate because these two collective queer artist houses, 50 years apart, both move to the Brooklyn waterfront for the same reasons. They nurture the same kind of artists, and they are both forced out by gentrification. What I really wanted to talk about in doing all of this research is the ways in which queer people, particularly those who are low income or those who work in non-traditional jobs and queer people of color, are kind of left out of the narrative when we just think about white artists moving in and gentrifying a neighborhood. Today, we take for granted the visibility of queer spaces. You can find them Uh, by signage, by a rainbow flag, by events, by gatherings. You know, they're fairly easy to find. But tell us about finding queer spaces in the past, in the historical record. A lot of the research that I've been using to find these places to start the storytelling is research from vice committees and arrest records and attack records and 
bars being shut down. And, you know, you kind of have to work against the archive in doing this research. You find the place where people are getting arrested and then you say, well, if they're getting arrested there, they were there for another reason. And what's that other reason? But that record is the one that's not kept because, you know, the gay people who were going there, we shouldn't even use the word gay because they probably wouldn't have themselves, but the people who were going there often didn't keep their own records, or if they were kept, they were then destroyed by their relatives when they died, or they weren't put into archives because they were considered shameful. You have to kind of find the evidence of the evidence that is no longer there. In 1973, a group of lesbian academics and activists recognized the challenges of locating and chronicling the queer history of their community and formed the Lesbian History Archives. We were lucky enough to visit the archives, now located in a brownstone on a quiet street in the neighborhood of Park Slope, and explore some of its remarkable collections. While we were there, Julie sat down with Deborah Adel, one of the co-founders of the archives, to talk about the institution's origins, collections, and mission. Deborah, take us back to the 1970s and describe how the Lesbian History Archives were formed. In the early 1970s, uh, there were a group of us who were active in the Gay Academic Union. Many of us felt very much that our histories were just disappearing, um, or they were in places that were uncomfortable to find, um, or they were locked away, in, um, or you had to go through searches back, um, that were degrading and uh, um, emotionally uh, charged. Um, and so a group of us who were in a consciousness raising group together uh, naively said, oh, let's start a, a collection. Let's just pour our own personal collections in and let's create a space where lesbians will feel comfortable coming to find their own history. I think many contemporaries might not even grasp the enormous challenge of chronicling and locating lesbian history in the 1960s and 70s. Well, I think um, you're right, and many of them don't um, know about the struggles, just like many of us didn't know about the struggles of our ancestors, lesbian and gay ancestors before us, until we began uncovering the layers in that way. Some of us had found um, before, in the, we started, as I said, in 73, 74 was actually when we formally started, that if you went to the library, it, Lesbian was not a term. It was not part of the cataloging system. Um, and often, therefore, you had to look under deviant. If you went to a textbook for lesbian history, you had to look under pathology. Um, there were just so many places where we were buried. Um, nobody was talking about who was a lesbian. No one was identifying um, lesbians historically. Um, so it was very, very difficult for us to find history. How did this shape how you collected and made your collections accessible? From the very beginning, we knew that what we wanted to collect was the lives and stories of our lives, the broadest range of, of lesbian experience, but that we had to go beyond the traditional papers and documents. We needed to um, collect buttons and T-shirts and tapes and uh, candlesticks Anything that lesbians did, anything that lesbians touched. We also knew that we were not a traditional archives um, in just so many other ways because, um, first of all, in tr traditional archives, many of them, when you walk in, you have to leave your backpack at the door. 
You have to only take your two pencils. You have to put on little gloves. Um, you can ask for material, but you really basically shouldn't be touching it. And we decided that it was more important for people to feel at home with the archives and at home with their own histories. And that if we lost something to touch because the oil from your fingers got on something, we would take that risk. But that it was more important for uh, lesbians to be able to really feel along with read what we had and look at what we had. If they just want to come, and as one woman said, she said she would come, this is back when we were on the Upper West Side, and she would sit on the floor by one of the bookcases, and she saw it as a lesbian waterfall. And she would come and get healing from sitting there and feeling lesbian culture pouring down on her that way. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about the archives location. So this isn't the first home of the archives, right? How did we get to where we are now in a brownstone and park slope? The building that you're in right now is the second home of the archives. We started actually on the Upper West Side um, in an apartment. And when we began to run out of space, we decided to try to find a real home for the archives rather than moving somebody around an apartment. And we looked in many different neighborhoods um, and we found this building in, in Park Slope. Now, it, we're on 14th Street. When we got this building in 1991, 9th Street was kind of the cutoff. This was not your traditional Park Slope elegant neighborhood. We bought the building. Um, back then, we bought it for $313,000, which was a lot of money for us at that time. Uh, we fundraised from, uh, oh, around the world, people literally in places in other countries um, and in other parts of the United States who may never actually make it here uh, to New York, believed very much in the work that we were doing and um, helped us fund it. Um, the neighborhood <laughs> first heard um, that some lesbians were going to be taking over this house on 14th Street. And everybody got upset because they thought we were a lesbian bar. Wow. When they were told that we weren't a bar, but we were a bunch of librarians, <laughs> or at least that was their interpretation, <laughs> everybody became quite relaxed about it. For listeners who aren't from here, tell us a little more about Park Slope in the 1990s when the archives moved here. We selected Park Slope for a few reasons. One, because it was affordable. Um, another, because it was beginning to be known as the Dyke Slope. Um, again, it was because back then it was an affordable neighborhood. Um, the housing stock is old, but very good. Um, the transportation isn't bad. Um, and there really were a lot of lesbians living in the neighborhood in that way back then. Um, who could afford <laughs> this this kind of a building in that way. Interestingly enough, uh, the building next door to us became available a few years ago, and um, when we asked them how much they were going to ask for it, because we thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to just push through the wall and have a double building? Um, they wanted um, close to $2 million for oh, it. Oh, my goodness gracious. So we knew we, we were priced out of that's, expansion. That's remarkable. 
walking up to the building, um, it, it's a brownstone, right? Right. It, yeah. It's it. You're, it looks like you're you know you're in a re- largely residential neighborhood. In a way, it's a, a, a an institution that feels the most hidden in plain sight. Can you talk about the idea of the lesbian history archives as as a queer space in that sense? There's something about the minute you walk in the door, you know that you're in a safe space, you're in a comfortable space, you're in a welcoming space, um, and you're in a queer space, if you will, um, just by what you see around you from the minute you walk in the door. We are lucky enough to have some gems of materials from this remarkable collection out here on the table. Let's talk a little bit about the Dictionary okay. that you're holding here, which is just so beautiful. Describe it for us. Sure. The Dictionary is a book that's probably about four by seven or four by eight. Um, it's clearly hand done. It's um, paper that can be removed. It's um, it is in Japanese um, and in English, and it is literally, if I may read you a little bit about why have a dictionary. The motivation for this dictionary comes from the awareness that one of the boys' strategies in keeping women apart and oppressed is their control of language. As long as dykes have no access to words that we need to communicate and express ourselves in another language, as long as the boys keep words and concepts like clitoris, compulsory heterosexuality, coming out, out of their dictionaries, we have D-I-C-K dictionaries, we have difficulty speaking to each other about important areas in our lives. So here's an attempt to help bridge the communication gap to fight the patriarchal strategies for blocking dyke energy. And it's beautiful. If you look through it, alphabetically, I see words like closet, and then there's the phonetic and the um, Japanese lettering, um, community, compulsory heterosexuality, and it just goes on. Her story, heterosexist, Revolution, ritual, self-acceptance, self-esteem. It just goes on and on and on. And it has some phrases also. Um, And it's just beautiful. With translations between English and Japanese. Yes. Bondage, labyrinth, penetration. You need them all. (laughs) In the collecting of material from the very beginning, we had a chance to really make sure that we incorporated the lives um, of more than just the famous. Um, I don't want to say that we didn't incorporate the lives of the famous um, when people wanted to give us parts of their collections, Um, but we did incorporate um, the lives of people like Mabel Hampton, who lived her life from an early age on as a African-American lesbian um, living in the South Bronx who worked um, as a domestic. She worked as a, and then she sang in um, choral groups and she was a dancer and, um, and has, there's some, again, some of her tapes have been digitized because we did 
an extensive oral history with her. Um, and there, some of them are, are actually on our website. Deb, thank you so much for having us here at this really remarkable institution. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Come back again. We'll do it again. Oh, we will. <laughs> you can learn more about the Lesbian History Archives and how to visit the space at lesbianhistoryarchives.org. There, you can also explore some of their digital collections, including Mabel Hampton's oral history. In this installment of Voices of Brooklyn, we feature a narrator from our AIDS Brooklyn Oral History Project collection. Philip Coleman was 52 at the time of this interview in 1992, and he was a self-identified gay African-American man. So he was born in Harlem. He lived on the Upper West Side. And when we sort of touch base with him, he's now moved to East Flatbush, Brooklyn. We also know that he was a member of the Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was an organization that was really at the forefront of AIDS activism in the 1980s when this was such an enormous crisis for the gay community in New York City and all over the country and really around the world. We went looking into our archives for an oral history for a voice of Brooklyn to talk about queer spaces. And I know Julie and I are both somewhat apprehensive about turning to the AIDS Brooklyn oral history collection. Julie, do you want to talk a little bit about why we were a little bit, we wanted to find it somewhere else? Yeah, the, the, I think we, there in a way, especially in the 80s and 90s, gay history became so tied up in the history of AIDS, which was such a, a holocaust for that community, mm-hmm. um, that to continue that sort of connection, yeah. you know, we didn't we, we didn't want to make that sort of that same fusing right. of these or uh, of these two topics. Right. Um, on the other hand, and I think this is a kind of interesting um, look into the way that libraries work, it was really challenging for us to find um, oral histories that were, you know, tagged as right. places where we might find right. queer stories. And right. this goes back to so many of the themes that we've been talking about yeah. in our podcast today. Right. Even when Deborah Adel, you know, said the way that we had to search for our history in the 1970s was with with these unbelievably derogatory words like right. deviant, right? right? right. Um, there, we you know we haven't coded all of our oral histories or tagged all of our oral histories with the key search terms that we would use for any other topic. That's so, right. um, our preparation for this episode kind of models the challenges yeah. of, of unearthing yeah. queer history. Yeah, I mean, and Hugh, Hugh said the same thing. You 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 go looking for what isn't said. So we ended up coming to this interview, and in this excerpt, Philip Coleman talks about some of the themes or addresses some of the themes that we've touched on today in terms of queer spaces, but in a way that complicates our understanding of how queer spaces functioned and how people moved in and through and out of these spaces. So with that, we're going to play our first excerpt. As a gay man, I've, I've... It, it's the same same prejudices, you know, because I generally, when I'm out, it's not, you know, I'm not telling people that I'm gay. I've only had bad experiences as it relates to my gayness and prejudice when I've gone into bars 
for instance, and years ago, you know, when I used to go to bars, and I, you would get that, even no niggers here, or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they, you know, the same as you would go into a straight bar, and the same thing happened to, you know, so you, you just didn't go, <laughs> you know, you know, and I. So, so the, the prejudice basically was generally, in my case, was not because of being gay, but because of being African American. You know, that's generally how how mine comes about. I can't really recall being. I, I really can't recall being someone doing something to me because I was gay. I really, I really can't. And the few times that that was going to happen, I beat him up. I think one of the th things that was exciting about finding Coleman's interview is that this is this perfect example of the many layers of his identity and of the really the intersectionality um, and the varying power relations that shaped his life. So he's articulating really clearly that it wasn't his gayness, but his blackness that brought on the most um, the most prejudice that he experienced in his life. Yeah, I mean, I think that it speaks to how people at the intersection of multiple identities experience their lives in very specific ways. In this episode, we've talked about queer spaces, and I think we've been very clear, and our guests have been very clear, how even within these spaces, the experiences are not universal. In in Coleman's experiences, um, some of the queer spaces that he's frequented have been white spaces. Yeah. They've been spaces of prejudice. And I also think, you know, there's something really interesting about performativity here. Coleman can't hide his blackness, right, right. but he, you know, he seems to imply that he can he can hide his sexuality right. and even the idea of I'll beat him, I'll beat them up. You know what right, I mean? I thought that right. was like you know, there's part of you that's like you go, <laughs> you go fill up, you know. Right, but I mean, right. the, the, I, I thought that that was that you know that just thinking about what you can what you can obscure and what you can't obscure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's listen to the second clip. I, I was became more of a homebody since I moved to Brooklyn. You know, and I stay closer to home. I don't go as much as I used to go. I mean, prior to my stopping work, I didn't, you know, even then I didn't go as much. I lost my lover, you know, uh, you know, under very hurting circumstance. And so I, you know, I, my, I did change, but I don't think it was because of moving to Brooklyn. I think it was because of what happened, you know. If I had moved somewhere else, I'm sure I would be the same way. You know, I wouldn't want to be bothered with a lot of things, you know. I think it's also interesting the way that Coleman is playing with ideas of public public space and private space. In his, again, and like and this is a very specific experience for him, Brooklyn has represented this shift to almost a private sphere. Right, right. Um, whereas when he talks more about his experience living on the Upper West Side, he has this interaction with public spaces on a much more frequent basis. Yeah. And there's this interesting thing about, is it the place is it Brooklyn or is it the moment in his life right, that's shaping right. it? And I, I think both of those are in play, right? So there is, you know, there's this kind of geography of gay New York when told from a certain perspective that Manhattan is the capital, right? And I think that we have 
dislodge that a little bit in this episode, talking about queer spaces on the Brooklyn waterfront, talking about the lesbian history archives, and and now thinking about people who lived in Brooklyn and what their relationship was to the spaces that maybe they used to frequent. And I think part of this also is navigating the space by yourself. Yeah, I think the geography of those queer spaces probably becomes very different when you're doing it alone versus with a partner. So there's the psychic loss, but also that very material loss of the way that you're interacting with the neighborhoods that you frequent every day. So let's listen to the next clip. I, I still go to dances and when they have, you know, when I can, when I can, now when I can afford to go, I, you know, I have to save up a couple of months to go to these things, you know. Because they're like twenty-five, fifty, hundred dollars a shot, you know. And I, you know, and I you just can't be throwing that kind of money. I'm on a, I'm on a fixed income now, <laughs> as as they used to say, as the old folks I say, as the old folks used to say, I'm on a fixed income. But now I know how they feel too, <laughs> with this fixed income mess. It's it's, it's awful. Gosh, I mean, and this brings up issues of class yeah. and aging, yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> the relationship yeah. between money and aging. Um, and, you know, I don't know that we always think when we think about a, like a high point in gay nightlife in New York City, we don't always think deeply about the cost right. of that right. um, and, um, you know, the privilege one of the reasons why I really like this interview with Philip Coleman, he was 52 at the time this interview was done, as we said. And and some of this is generated from within the gay community, this promotion of a certain kind of image that tends to be white, that tends to be middle class or upper class or elite, that tends to be youthful or very young. And Philip Coleman is challenging us to think about, you know, the full life experience of of individuals who are gay or lesbian and, and, you know, more broadly. And I think the idea that you can't afford to go to the spaces that once were your refuge, that once were the places where you formed community, is something that I think is important to contemplate. So now we're going to listen to our final excerpt from Philip Coleman's interview. I don't hide... I'm, you know, anything. I, I'm the same person I was 10 years ago in terms of how I express myself, how I walk the street, how I do everything. I'm, I'm still the same person. What I like about this clip is that he introduces to us another way of thinking about space, and that is the body as space. When he says, you know, I'm, I, I express myself how I walk the street, I mean, one of the ways that people claim space is through motion, is through movement, and the first space we inhabit is our bodies. And I think it's important when you think about queer bodies as a way of, this is the first space that people inhabit. This is the first place where people demonstrate their identity oftentimes. And one that they can manipulate more so than the environment in which they're acting. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think Philip Coleman's interview gives us a lot of ways to think about queer spaces in terms of relationship to your body, relationship to your class, to your age, to your race. And it's an excellent uh, way to think about more complex ideas of queer spaces as we've been discussing on this episode. So you can listen to the entirety of Philip Coleman's interview on the show notes for this episode. 
On our last episode, we were joined by KT Williams, who is one of our colleagues here at BHS, and she endorsed one event she's really excited for, Redefined and Redesigned Defying Gender Norms in Fashion. Good news. There are still tickets left, so you can go onto our show notes where you'll find the link to this event and come and join us here at BHS on Thursday, June 23rd at 630 for this event. I just think it's going to be a great place to continue some of the conversations that yeah. we started today yeah. about gender and identity and sort of throw clothing into the mix and think about the way that that defines space and defines who we, we are. And, you know, this, I think, is a perfect example of the kind of programs we do here at BHS. They're conversations, they're open spaces for reflection and debate, and we know this event will be, too. So come and join the conversation. Yeah. Also, we are going to include several resources related to the Orlando mass shooting on our show notes, historical context, commentary, and ways you can help. So be sure to check that out. And with this episode of Flatfish in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guests, writer and curator Hugh Ryan and Deborah Adel of the Lesbian History Archives. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of some of the documents and artifacts we talked about, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. <laughs>